0: You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, associate editor at the Washington Post. The torch has been passed on Capitol Hill. A new generation of Democratic House leaders were elected, and in the process, history was made with the elevation of the first black lawmaker to lead either party in Congress. Joining me now to discuss this and other happenings on the Hill. Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for the Washington Post. Mariana, welcome back to First Look.
1: Thanks for having me back.
0: So uh, the new leader of the House, uh, House Democratic Caucus is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries of New York City. Um, Here's what he said shortly after winning his leadership election, listen. We look forward to finding opportunities to partner with the other side of the aisle and work with them whenever possible, but we will also push back against extremism whenever necessary. So Mariana, let's talk about the first half of what he said in that statement. How likely is it that Leader Jeffries and and the Democrats will be able to work with the incoming Republican majority?
1: You know, that's something that I have been reporting on, both on the Democratic side, that willingness and also the Republican side. There is admission now publicly by Republicans that given their margins are so close, it could end up four or five seats. They are going to need Democrats to pass these big pieces of legislation like funding the government, the debt ceiling, things that have a deadline and have really grave consequences if Congress doesn't address them. But, you know, you do hear from some Republicans as well as some Democrats that there, you can actually find some compromises on some issues. Probably not the most, you know, politically debated ones like immigration. That is something that most, uh, both parties acknowledge is going to be pretty tough. But you know, it's interesting, Jeffries and and a number of other Democrats. When you ask them, hey, do you have a relationship with Kevin McCarthy, who may or may not become speaker? I'm sure we can chat a little bit about his prospects oh, yeah. there. They say, you know, I, I talk a lot more with Steve Scalise, who is a number two Republican. Um, but, I'm, you know, Jeffries has actually told us I'm, I'm leaving the door open to working with McCarthy for the good of the American people. So there is that willingness. But Democrats really driving home that if, you know, any Republicans who are extremists in their point of view put forward any extreme legislation, don't count on Democrats for help.
0: I was going to ask you about the relationship between Jeffries and and McCarthy, but you you, you touched on it. So let's talk about how uh, Leader Jeffries will differ from Speaker Pelosi.
1: I mean, in many different ways, and that's something that the caucus itself really wants. They have for a long time been telling me that they were just ready for not just a new and younger generation, but a generation that legislates differently. And by that, Is, you know, Pelosi, to her credit, many historians will say and have said that she is likely going to be the best and most effective speaker in U.S. history to date. And the reason why is because she really has had a strong hand at the top. She has been the decision maker. She has amassed a lot of the power to the office of the speaker. And because of that, she has been able to make sure that any piece of legislation that she puts on the floor, the votes are there. And you, we've seen in the last year how those very small margins, even for Democrats, you saw the liberals and you saw the moderates often going into her office and negotiating for a long time saying, hey, if you had included us in these conversations earlier, instead of telling us today we're voting on this, maybe we would have prevented this headache when we have some issues with whatever piece of legislation that is at the core of what members want. They want a new leadership team led by Jeffries, but also for him not to necessarily amass all that power to talk more to the rank and file and also lean on his number two and three, Catherine Clark, who's going to be minority whip and also Pete Aguilar, who is assuming Jeffries role currently as Democratic chairman, for them to use their strengths and weaknesses and also their relationships within the caucus itself to really embody and embrace a lot of those opinions within the ranks so that they can make those decisions rather than have, again, someone like Pelosi at the very top saying, this is what's going to happen.
0: So you just mentioned the, you know, the, the leadership team, the the new the new three as they were dubbed by Punchbowl, the next generation as we're all talking about them. Uh, and yet, the only Democratic leader who didn't step away from a leadership role is 82-year-old Congressman James Clyburn, who until the next Congress is still the majority the majority whip. Um, in the next Congress, he will be assistant minority leader. Why did he insist on a leadership role with this new, much younger team?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting to see how all of these leadership decisions actually came to be. And Clyburn, out of Pelosi and Hoyer, has really been telegraphing since earlier this year. You know, I, I'm happy to take an advisory role. And I do think that this new generation took that into account. And, you know, Jeffries was asked this question because members, you know, they've been wanting younger Younger leadership, both Jeffries and Clark are in their fifties, and Aguilar is in his early forties. And then you have Clyburn as number four. And Jeffries says, you know, there is something to be said about the fact that he is a senior member of the Congressional Black Caucus, which is often referred to as the conscience of the Congress. And they really do want someone with that wisdom, with that guidance. And personally, Jeffries and Clyburn are very close. Jeffries has gone to Clyburn oftentimes during this leadership race to get that assurance that, you know, if Pelosi does step down, does he have the support? Will Clyburn make sure that the CBC is there for him? So it seems like at this point in time, and it's actually something that members do want as much as they're ready for this new generation. They know that, you know, because you don't have someone like Pelosi, you can get members to fall in line. It's going to be tough for these members to kind of find that power, find, find that ability to do that. So is almost comforting to a lot of members that you have Clyburn's guidance and that Hoyer and Pelosi will also be around next term in case any of the new guys have questions.
0: Um, I'm just gonna uh, uh, alert the control room that we're gonna go a little over cause we can't have this conversation and not talk about uh, more, more thoroughly about Kevin McCarthy. But to your point about Jeffries and Clyburn being very close, this entire new leadership team is very close, which probably bodes well for them, at least from where we sit right now. All right, Mariana, Kevin McCarthy, you alluded to it earlier that, I mean, we're all assuming Kevin McCarthy is going to be the next speaker. Kevin McCarthy assumes he's going to be the next speaker, but he doesn't have two hundred eighteen the 218 votes he needs on January 3rd as we're talking right now, does he?
1: That's exactly right. I mean, you talk to anyone up here, including Republican members themselves. And if they they're the ones saying, if you hear that he has the votes, it's probably wrong. If you hear that he doesn't have the votes, it's probably wrong. No one knows. And we're all probably going to watch this play out on January third. And the reason why is that's the day that McCarthy has to get voted on the floor and has to get those 218 votes to become speaker. But right now we're looking at either a four or five margin majority, which is barely anything. And you have already more than five very, very staunch conservatives saying, there's no way in the world I'm gonna vote for McCarthy. And McCarthy has been really good and very cognizant after witnessing what happened in the last majority where the Freedom Caucus, the most conservative group, Really made it so painfully hard for Speaker Boehner and Speaker Ryan to do anything that they really wanted. So he tried to preempt that by really fostering relationships within that group and also the moderates, giving a lot of concessions to these people when it comes to committee assignments and things like that. But that still may not be enough. You know, I've talked to a lot of Republicans who say, There are just some members who really dislike McCarthy for a long time because McCarthy maybe didn't give him a committee assignment way back when. And to make up for that resent may be impossible and may lead to his failure to never become speaker, which is something that he really, really wants.
0: Yeah, he so wants it that there have been plenty of stories, and you've done these stories about how behind the scenes, he's negotiating with a lot of people and the big fear, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're the one who's actually in the, <laughs> walking those halls, but there's a lot of fear that he's negotiating away a lot of the power of the speakership in order just to get, just to get the gavel. Here's my, here, here's my Machiavellian question for you, Mariana. Okay. If he doesn't have the 218 votes from his very slim, but more than 218 Republican majority, Is there any possible, conceivable way (laughs) that McCarthy goes to the Democratic leadership and pleads with them for the two, three, four, five votes he needs to get over 218? And are there any Democrats who would actually do that?
1: You know, he has publicly said, I'm not going to do that. And I don't think that there are Democrats who would be willing to do that after January 6th. As much as there are bipartisan Democrats, they really, really, and McCarthy did have relationships with Democrats, but I've talked to them, those people, and they're like, I can't look this guy in the face anymore after January 6th. So I don't think you have that Democratic support. But I mean, I've talked to some Republicans even this week who have been in the room with McCarthy trying to figure out the math. And there might be ways that they, you know, there's, House rules are way too intense even for me to sometimes understand. And clearly for these members who are trying to figure out if, you know, can members vote present? Does that lower the threshold of the actual majority number needed? That seems to have helped other speakers in the past when, you know, a member is sick or, you know, they they can't physically be on the floor. So maybe there's some math manipulation in that way that they could do to make sure that McCarthy's speaker. But it's interesting. Even someone like Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene warning her Republican colleagues and saying, listen, if it's not McCarthy, then who is it going to be? And there's Republicans saying if for some reason you could get Jeffries on the floor and he could get a majority of votes, could he be the speaker? Probably not going to happen. But Republicans are literally worried about that. They are worried about that.
0: (laughs) See, I mean. Everyone who's watching, trust me, this speaker drama on the Republican side is worth every moment of your time to pay attention to because we don't know what's going to happen. And that's what makes it so interesting. Mariana Sotomayor, congressional reporter for the Washington Post, as always, thank you for coming to First Look and staying a little extra overtime. (laughs) Have a good weekend. Of
1: course, this was fun. Happy to talk about it anytime.
0: All right, have a good weekend. We're going to keep this conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post associate editor uh, and columnist, Eugene Robinson, and Washington Post columnist, Jennifer Rubin. Gene, Jennifer, welcome back to First Look.
2: Nice to
3: be here. Jonathan, good to be here.
0: Um, So I want to keep talking about the the leadership races uh, on Capitol Hill. We'll get to these interesting new job creation numbers and the unemployment rate in in a moment. But let's pick up where I left off with Mariana, and that is the drama over whether Kevin McCarthy is actually going to get the speaker's gavel. Jennifer, I mean, the fact that there are at least eight House Freedom Caucus members who have said, I'm not voting for Kevin McCarthy, under any circumstances, that means at this point right now, he's dead in the water when it comes to being speaker, no?
2: Yes, and the question is, what's he gonna give up to these people to get it? And for a week or so now, you've heard him throw out all of these things. He's gonna put Marjorie Taylor Green back on committees. He's gonna kick off Adam Schiff. So Adam Schiff isn't on the Intelligence Committee. All of these are bids to keep his far right in his corner. And it just goes to the fact that he is already, if he's going to be the speaker, the weakest speaker we've had in quite some time. And if he isn't, what kind of disarray are the Republicans going to be in with this very slim vote margin? Gene,
0: what do you think, especially? um this idea and i know it's fanciful i can't imagine any democrat um lending a vote in order to push kevin mccarthy uh over the top so that he gets the gavel but you know ever, ever since the last presidency i've kept my imagination wide open
3: yeah and you ought to keep your imagination wide open cuz i don't <laughs> think we know how this is going to play out i remember i think it was the last time republicans Took the majority away from Nancy Pelosi, and they were having some trouble, as usual, um, figuring, you know, with the Freedom Caucus and this and that. I remember a conversation with Pelosi, and uh, and and sort of asking, "So, is it possible that you would have more votes in this, you know, under this Republican majority to become speaker?" And she just waved that off and said, "No, they got, they won the majority." It should be a Republican speaker, um, and um, it, it, she didn't, There was no next sentence, so I, I I don't know if that meant we would vote present or I would get enough people to vote present or I would or or, or something. But um, so, but that was Pelosi, um, and so who, who, that was a different time. That was before January sixth. So who knows? Um, it is hard for me to imagine Democrats helping Republicans <laughs> get themselves organized.
0: Right. That actually was a good point. And I can't believe I didn't even think of that, that the idea of Democrats helping Republicans, especially after January 6th, um, is fanciful uh, on my part. So on Tuesday, there's going to be a runoff in Georgia. Um, Herschel Walker, the Republican, uh, Reverend Senator Raphael Warnock, the incumbent senator, who isn't still a an uncomfortably close race with someone who is, by all measures, unqualified to be in this race, and yet it is close. Jennifer, what's going on?
2: This is the state of our politics these days, that people are uh, so tribalistic that they will vote for someone abjectly unqualified um, and who has become sort of a punchline rather than vote for uh, the other party. But I think what you're going to see uh, is that Republicans who kind of held their noses and voted for Walker because they thought during the general election that there was some chance the Republican Party would get the majority no longer have that incentive to turn out. So they may not want to vote for Warnock, but by the same token, they may not bother to show up at the polls. Mm. And this is a big problem for Republicans. You've had a huge turnout in early voting and especially in Democratic areas. So they are running up the lead, if you will, much the way they did during the general election. But if Republicans are not motivated to get out, and it seems every day there are more scandals and more women who come forward to accuse Walker of something, um, he's going to lose. And I think... um, at this point, um, Warnock is probably the favorite. He also brought in the big gun yesterday to have Barack yeah. Obama there, who was in fine form. Uh, he has a way of very n- cleverly needling uh, Walker without appearing to be mean um, or demeaning. Um, but he got his point across. This guy can grow up to be anything he wants, he says, except for Senator.
0: Uh-huh. Uh, Gene, <laughs> where we come from, that ca- that is the brilliance of shade.
3: It's, yeah, that's it's polite, yes.
0: but <laughs> next thing you know, your arms lopped off and your head falls exactly. off because you've been sliced and diced in the nicest possible way. Your view of the Georgia Senate runoff.
3: Well, first of all, yes, President Obama can throw some shade. Okay? <laughs> he absolutely can. <laughs> um, so I think Jen is, Jen's analysis is basically right. I mean, it, it, it is all about turnout at this point. Because um, uh, I don't think there are any undecided voters left in Georgia, except maybe, as Jen said, a few Republicans who, who were like, should I hold my nose and vote for the Republican or not? Um, so maybe may some people undecided in that way, but it's it's extremely polarized state, like it's an extremely polarized country. And um, so the polls have it really close, I think um, I, I do think Warnock has an advantage um, uh, based largely on the early voting numbers and uh, and 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 the fact that control of the Senate is no longer um, in doubt and so we will see I you know I wouldn't I wouldn't sleep this one I wouldn't relax if I were in the Warnock uh, campaign.
0: Right, right. I want to squeeze in two more topics before we literally run out of time. Uh, Jennifer, you wrote a column this week about how one major Republican pushed back on Donald Trump's dinner um, with um, two anti-Semites and white supremacists. What did you like so much about uh, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson's um, response?
2: You know, he's been one of the few Republicans who's pretty bi- has been pretty consistent throughout. He was never a big lie purveyor. Um, very early on, he dismissed the notion. Um, he out and out condemned uh, Donald Trump. He didn't just say it was unwise, or he didn't know that these guys were anti-Semites. He didn't use a lot of the dodges that many Republicans do. He was just quite emphatic about it, and he's been that way. Um, not on issues of policy necessarily. He's very very much a right wing conservative, staunch conservative. But in terms of these basic issues of truth telling and uh, democratic uh, support, small d, Um, he really has been rather stalwart. And because so many of them are so spineless, so jello-like, and so willing to really um, demean themselves, he kind of stands out. Um, And, you know, it shouldn't be, as I put it, worth a medal um, simply to tell the truth. Um, But apparently in the Republican Party, that's what passes for courage these days.
0: Mm -hmm. Gene, I I, I love your thoughts on this, but I have to tell you this latest thing that the artist formerly known as Kanye West has done is really just, I can't even wrap my head around why he's doing what he's doing and why there aren't more people on the Republican side pushing hard to put a lid on not just what Ye is doing, but what Trump is doing.
3: Well. Good question. I mean, I got, I got, I got off the the yay train uh, a while ago because uh, this is just pure naked, virulent, ugly anti Semitism. Period, and and I don't think you have to complicate it. I mean, he right. went on Alex Jones yesterday and said, "I like Hitler." He tweeted a swastika uh, and got himself banned from Twitter. I mean, this is just—yes, uh, this is crazy stuff. And you can ask whether he's on his, you know, off his meds, obviously, or not, or whatever. But this is just plain hideous uh, and, and should be called out for what it is. And the fact that um, that the, the former president. Uh, pals around with him and his white supremacist buddy It um, uh, says a lot about Donald Trump and the fact that the party except for asa, asa Hutchinson uh, and and a few others won't uh, won't say a peep about it uh,
0: says a lot about the republican party
3: I mean they're, you know um, you you roll around with pigs and and you get dirty mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. let's turn to um, happier news because it was announced today that the economy appears to be going strong despite high inflation. Two hundred sixty-three thousand jobs created in November. The unemployment rate held steady at three point seven percent. And then we've heard earlier this week that the the GDP grew almost three percent, which is better than the original forecast. So, um, Gene, I'm going to come to you with this first. I want you both to talk about this. Should we still be concerned about a recession coming in 2023?
3: you know i wondered if we would get uh, get to this topic so i was i was on twitter looking uh, and you know great economists that i i follow and really respect who had completely opposite views on <laughs> this was great news or terrible news in terms of of of, of the economy and and some people worry that this number indicates we're going to have a continued inflation problem to, what I'm starting to wonder is whether we're actually having what everybody said was so uh improbable, which is the soft landing um mm-hmm. uh, it 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 looks like with, without going through a deep recession we can uh we can we can maybe get this inflation beast under control, and um uh, you know we shall see, but uh it looked, numbers look good to me
0: hmm and Jennifer, to add to the good news. The rail strike that was looming um, has been a has been averted. Your view on this um, incredible economy that we seem to be living in? Yeah, we're so
2: acute, uh, accustomed to find bad news and the rainy cloud inside the silver lining that I think when. <laughs> Good news comes. Um, we're sometimes hesitant to acknowledge it, but you're exactly right. Had that real strike gone forward, we would have seen hundreds of thousands of people thrown out of jail, uh, out of jail, out of uh, work, Perfect. and. Um, the goods that people are accounting on to be in the stores for the holiday season would have been uh, delayed um, or interrupted entirely. So I think this is very good news. Um, there were two other figures earlier in the week that were also good, and that was that inflation, although still high, um, the rate is coming down on a month-to-month, year-to-year basis, and consumer spending is up. So these are the signs of a pretty healthy economy. And although um, inflation is by no means uh, under control, you even saw the Fed um, acknowledge that some of these rate increases, we can maybe taper down. And I think um, we're going to be looking at a, a 0.5 um, basis point uh, increase rather than a 0.75 that we've seen in the past. So uh listen, it's better to be lucky than good. And maybe the Biden administration is a little bit of both, but they have to be very pleased that things are not an awful lot worse right now.
0: Right. And in fact, didn't uh, the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell, didn't he either say flat out or signal this week that, yeah, we might be able to ease up off the break, not completely, but ease up a little bit. Right, Gene?
3: Yeah, he did, and, and and you saw the stock market responded, and, and and people responded. Again, there are differing views as to whether whether Powell is right or wrong. But he's he's the guy um, who's at the steering wheel, and he looks at all the all the data and all the numbers, and he he thinks uh, that they can uh, take their foot off the gas uh, a bit, and uh, and I think that's a that's a healthy. Time um, we've you know just lots of good economic numbers faster growth than was in, was previously reported um, it, it's uh, it's looking good.
0: Um, one one question that I neglected to get to at the beginning of our conversation, but I think it might be nice to end on this just real quickly the the election of Congressman Hakeem Jeffries as the Democratic leader in the House, the first African-American of either party to ascend to such heights in Congress. What does that, what does that say, given all the, the white supremacy nonsense that, that we're dealing with and anti-Semitism? What does it say about where we are that Hakeem Jeffries has risen to where, where he is? Gene, you go first real
3: quick well it's a, it's another milestone uh, and an important one and i says that i think it says something about the country and about um uh, how uh, how diverse it is um how um uh, you know the the um, a congressional black caucus i think can feel that it has come into its own in a way um, that it, it hadn't in all the years previous. And I think uh, Congressman uh, Jim Clyburn, I think the main reason he's uh, staying on in leadership is to, to, to be kind of, kind of a mentor and also someone who can run interference for Hakeem Jeffries with the Congressional Black Caucus because he's not always going to be able to do exactly what the CBC wants him to do. And -hmm. I I think Clyburn can help, um, can help him through those, uh, through those passages.
0: Uh, Excuse me, that's actually a great point about um, Congressman Clyburn. uh, For Congressman Jeffries, Jennifer, your thoughts on this, and then we'll, we'll end.
2: A few points. First of all, how smooth this was in contrast to the Republicans. The Democrats actually are in array and not disarray the way the headlines usually read. So kudos to them. (laughs) They actually have their act together. Secondly, this really bodes well for the center of the Democratic Party. Hakeem Jeffries is a moderate, and in fact, in the past, um, the Squad and the other left uh, elements in the Democratic Party thought he was too friendly towards business. So if you're looking for a Democratic Party to really Occupy the center and um, not get led astray into uh, areas that uh, don't have majority support out in the country. This would definitely be it. And the last thing I would say is this just shows how completely out of it this small minority of white supremacists and bigots and racists really are. The country has moved on and they have not. And they do not represent the general public. They do not represent our politics. And that probably makes them even more frantic and more furious because they can't control what's going on. So I think you're seeing the last gasps of a group of people who can no longer dominate politics, no longer dominate our society. Society, and you're seeing um, one more little step um, towards a more inclusive society. So more good news. Who knew we would have so much good news in the <laughs> year? Yeah.
0: Yeah, right? I don't. Yeah. I could get used to this. Eugene yeah. Robinson, Jennifer Rubin, as always, we've run out of time and still have so much to talk about. Thank you both very much for coming back to First Look. Have a good weekend. You too. You too.
1: Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with First Look, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.